the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, normally joined by Aubrey Sampson. Aubrey is off today. She will be back with us again tomorrow. And uh, I'm sure you are fully aware that today is September 11th, and we want to take seriously that call to never forget and to reflect on that terrible day 22 years ago. And uh, one of the ways we wanted to do that is to bring back a friend of ours, the, a senior writer at the Gospel Coalition, uh, Sarah Zylstra. Sarah, how are you doing today? I am doing well. How are you doing, Brian? I'm doing great, Sarah. Thanks for jumping on with us. The reason we want to have Sarah on, and we talked to her about this last year, but I want to just bring it back, is that she did a podcast series kind of around 9-11 for the Gospel Coalition. Uh, That was really powerful, and I would encourage people to go check out today. The beauty of podcasts is they stay around forever. You can go find them. So, Sarah... Uh, talk to us again. Remind us of the background of that podcast series that you did. Yeah, it was such an interesting thing to do. So I ended up flying to New York to walk around Manhattan with a woman named Christina Stanton, who was a much you know younger woman when all of this happened. She was living in Manhattan. She had newly gotten married. She was in an apartment with her husband um, on the lower part of the island there. So they were um, south of the World Trade Centers, between sort of the World Trade Centers and the harbor. Um, and so she tells, she walked around with me and told me this story of um, she was asleep that morning when that first um, plane hit. And since it didn't go all the way through the building from her end of the building, all she could see was the flames and the smoke. So mm. they thought maybe it was a bomb. Um, you know, like we yeah. don't know what's going on here. And then she was standing on her balcony watching that when the second plane went overhead. Gosh. Um, and, and we hit, I mean, they're just like, you know, 10 blocks, but I mean, 10 small blocks. These aren't 10 Chicago length blocks. These are 10 little blocks between her and the building and, and the blast of it actually knocked them both backwards and out. They were both unconscious for a little bit. Whoa! And then, yes, yes, it was crazy. And then they, once they came to, and they thought we have to get out of here. So they ran down out of their building, got onto the street. And at that point she said, I realized I'm in my pajamas. I don't have shoes on. I need to do a redo. So she tried to go back into her building to go back up and grab her purse, maybe some pants, you know, just like some shoes that she could wear. And they said, you can't. We're only letting people out. You may not go back in. Mm. So she's on the street in her pajamas. Her husband, thankfully, had the, the presence of mind to grab a wallet and her dog. Um, and they started running with everybody else. And she said, everybody is running south, um, which is really the only way you can go. So there's water on both sides of you because you're on an island and it's kind of a narrow island there. And and there's burning on to the north of you. So you just run south and eventually you run out of land because right. you're on an island. So everybody's gathered at this place called Battery Park at the very bottom there. And it was 
there, um, they were all standing there. She's just like, people are running around like crazy. People are bleeding. Nobody knows what's going on because our cell phones don't work and we're not watching TV. So right. we're like the last people in America to even know what's happening. And they were standing there when that, when the first tower fell, she said it never entered our minds in a million years that the building could fall. Um, right. Cause we hadn't seen that before. Right. Nobody knew a building could fall over or really just collapse down on itself. And it was so tall um, that once it started to fall, they were realizing that it could fall on us mm. um, if it went sideways over. And so they, just, she said it was just the scariest, most alone, most panicky time. Um, her husband, she and her husband were both lapsed Christians. And so they're just saying the Lord's prayer with each other and feeling, you know, utterly, they're surrounded by these people running around, but still feeling like we, we can't meet God. Like we, you know, we're in no shape to meet the Lord. We're, mm. you know, what we've just been ignoring him completely and considering walking away from the faith altogether. Um, so that for her, actually, she said was her own ground zero moment of just praying in there. And then she said, what you think is going to happen to you after you stop worrying about getting hit by the building, you think I'm going to suffocate because there was so much dust in the air, Mm. um, so much ash from those, the concrete of those buildings, basically being pulverized as one floor lands on another, lands on another, lands on another. Um, and then it shoots, you know, all that dust shot out really, really fast. Right. Hurricane, hurricane level winds coming out of this building. Um, and so they thought we're going to, we can't breathe and breathe. Um, so they, uh, they managed to get out of that. Everybody's just walking, running. They don't really know what to do. A lot of people jumped in the water, but the trouble is they're a mile from the other shore. So that's going to take yes. 45 minutes if you're really fresh and a good, strong swimmer. Yes. So they didn't want to jump in the water and they didn't know what to do. So they just kept walking. And eventually she said, a policeman ran up to us. The only way we knew it was a policeman was his hat because he was covered in this ash as well. Mm. And he said, the second building is coming down, get next to the water as close as you can and turn your back toward it. And so everybody kind of hunched down picture like a tornado drill or something. You're all hunched down. Um, and that second building came down then. Man just roared right over them. Yes. Incredible. So she said, we were just trapped there. We couldn't get to the rest of the city. We couldn't get off. Um, there's no like dock there even, but she said boats, they, they put out a call for boats and a boat would come. And it's not like, you know, you have to drop down into the water there. So there's like a wall that you're standing on and you have to climb over a railing and there's probably a 10 to 20 foot drop before mm. you're or farther. So they were just dropping people onto these boats. I remember that. Yep. Just hoping you didn't break your leg and they'd throw your dog in and then they'd throw you in. And um, that's how they got off. And then it's, you know, the aftermath of it there, they dropped them off in New Jersey and went back for more people. And there you are standing in New Jersey in your pajamas with you know, nothing. All the hotel rooms are immediately taken up and there's, she said, we got the last rental car in the place and we drove for an hour before we could find a hotel room. Wow. And then you just, yep. She just stood under the shower and she's like, it just ran and ran and ran and you just cried. And, um, she said, I remember asking the hotel clerk for any, you know, that have those little toiletries in case you forgot yours. And the clerk says to her, like, which ones would you like? And she just said, all of them. All of them. Like, I, I, I need everything. <laughs> I have nothing. You know, like I just, I have nothing. Yeah. Um, so her story is incredible. Throughout the course, after this, 
um, she makes her way back into Manhattan. The whole place is, you know, as you can imagine and can remember, um, covered with pieces of paper of the missing, mm-hmm. right? Have you seen this mm-hmm. person? Have you seen this person? Anybody heard from this person? Um, and after a while, so she doesn't have a job anymore because she was a tour guide down there. And of course their buildings are no more. And her husband worked in finance. Um, but all of that, literally those buildings have collapsed. So there's very little work. And eventually they got to the point where she's like, we just, we were, we're out of money. Like we need some money. Um, and someone, one of her friends pointed her to Tim Keller's Redeemer Church. Oh, wow. Um, which had money because um, they had been planted there 12 years earlier. Um, and that they never asked for money, but churches around the country, Brian, when they, after 9-11, just started writing checks out to Redeemer because it was the only church they knew of in Manhattan. Wow. There were that few churches there. Um, and so Tim Keller's church um, immediately started, they they had counseling, they did relief work, um, they would hand out money, like, come and tell us what you need, um, and we'll give you the money for it. And so they just, they worked so hard, they worked their tails off um, at reaching out to people. And that church grew from, I think they were up around 2,500 before, they basically doubled wow. um, over the yeah, size of this. And they also, this is so weird to me, they also planned. So people, all guys were also coming to New York and being like, we feel terrible for this. What can we do? And they planted, I think Redeemer helped plant, helped to plant. They didn't do this all on their own. 20 churches out of that. Um, and Tony Carnes, who's a sociologist, said that 40% of Manhattan's churches were planted post 9-11. So there was just sort of wow. a movement in of the gospel, which is amazing. Like there, you know, your, your city has literally fallen around your ears. Um, but it also opened up a place for the gospel and the percentage of Manhattan believers rose from, I think 1% to maybe 5% today, which is still really small, but, but that's it's amazing. So bigger. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so Sarah, I appreciate that. I remember listening to it last year. I'm going to go back and listen to it again. Uh, But we gave people a taste. So where can they go Mm -hmm. find it? Where should they go get it? What's it called? I want to make sure people are able to access this podcast. Yes. And know that there is two of them. They're called Mm -hmm. Remembering 9-11. The first one I think is called The Day the Sky Turned Black. And the second one is called The Most Hopeful People. Um, And not only does it track this, I also talked to um, John Piper's Church in Minneapolis and Mark Devers in Washington, D.C., remember the Pentagon, and kind of gathered their stories as well. Um, And so, yeah, it's it's a gathering of all, all stories from all across the country that day. Awesome. Again, Sarah Zylstra, senior writer at the Gospel Coalition. But for this, we would encourage you to go check out the podcast, Remembering 9-11, uh, The Day the Sky Turned Black, and also The Most Hopeful People. Sarah, it's great to talk to you. We'll have you on again soon. Thanks for doing this again. Thank you so much. Yep. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. I'm thrilled to be joined by a good friend of the show, the director of the C.S. Lewis Institute. His name is K.J. Johnson. K.J., how are you doing today, buddy? Hey, man. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's awesome to have you on. And I was thinking about you today. Uh, as we know, today is September the 11th, uh, 22 years, which is just unbelievable to say. 22 years uh, since the worst terrorism attack on American soil. And I, I got thinking about you because uh, you reminded me you're a retired lieutenant colonel uh, in the U.S. Marine Corps. 
And you were telling me off air that uh, 9-11 came right in the middle of your service. So I'm like, I just want to hear the story. And I'm sure other people would be interested. So let's start there. What were you doing? Where were you on 9-11? Oh, wow. Well, so in the middle, I I served 20 years. So it was right around the 10-year mark of my career. Okay. And it really changed the tone. Not that you you're in the military and you train for worst case scenarios. It's sort of the break glass in case of needed, but it seemed like the glass had been shattered Mm. in at least my perception. And all of a sudden everybody had their, their game face on, if you will. But um, I was actually in a unit. I was stationed in uh, North Carolina okay, and I was in a unit that was working up for deployment. And so we were in the middle of a huge exercise. We were already, uh, very focused on on these worldly matters, and we'd actually been doing a lot of study of the whole Black Hawk Down scenario. Oh wow! So I, so I was a helicopter pilot, and we were going out on the, uh, what they call a Marine Expeditionary Unit, and we were going to be spending a lot of time doing interdictions in the Horn of Africa area. And so we were expecting to do a lot of stuff like that. So we were really already very game face focused. But um, I worked in the squadron operations, which over- oversees all of flight operations, and we were doing a big operation, and I had helicopters spread out all over the southeast. And as soon as, and I remember being called into our squadron red room, which we have a big TV, and just watching Mm. these things in disbelief. And I'd heard about the first plane driving in, but in my mind, the way it's described, I thought, oh, it must have been a small Cessna. That's right, that's right. Like a minor mishap. I thought, okay, bad, but not that bad. And then it dawned on how serious this was. And everything, because we lived on base, uh, and we lived on the base I worked on, and okay. everything started locking down. And I remember calling my wife and going, don't leave the base, because they locked everything down, and it was getting taking hours to get back on base. And my mm-hmm. kids were in preschool, and I was like, my kids will be stuck. Anyways, it, that, that's a bit of an aside. Yeah. But we all just sat there in the ready room watching this, and everything changed. Yes. The, and the world changed, but our little microcosm here was all of a sudden, oh, boy, we're about to step out the door and face this. It was pretty serious. Yeah. And so let's talk about that. So in the days, weeks, months, years following, like, did it, did your deployment speed up? Did you end up going? Like what ended up then happening? How did things change as a result of what happened on 9-11? So it couldn't speed up because we were almost out the door. So we were poised to go out. And um, the most action we saw is there was a, a, a bombing of a an American consulate in Karachi, and we sent some forces ashore. But it took a while for us to decide to go into Iraq. So we, my particular deployment, we didn't go into and do anything. I called it sort of um, the big cruise where we kind of jumped around, and every time there was something in the world, we were, po- we were pointed in that direction. Um, so that particular deployment, we didn't do any real combat per se. But we, it's sort of like... If you hear the noise downstairs and you think there's an intruder in your home, yeah. you start walking around. It was like that the whole time. Everybody was on edge and ready to go. And then, of course, as soon not long after I got back, there was the inv- invasion of Iraq and mm-hmm. uh, excuse me, um, Afghanistan. I'm getting like, conflicts mixed up now. That's right. And um, and uh, so many of my friends and I eventually ended up going to Afghanistan too. But it was sort of like I don't want to minimize the military operations before 9-11 in my time. Yeah. But it was almost like preseason, and this was now game season. 
You know, it's like the Bears losing to, you know, somebody in the preseason, nobody cares, and then they lose in the Packers. Yeah, and then we're yeah, all upset. yeah. Did you, was there, so it sounds like there was a different feel where, like, guys, like, yeah, I, I picture guys also kind of itching to go, like, let us into the battle. Let us, it was, was there a oh, feeling yeah. of that? Talk to us about that. That, yes, I wrestled that. I was a little frustrated. I knew some guys that were almost looking for it. And I thought, mm-hmm. you know, we're here as a deterrent. We shouldn't. Uh, remember that old show Kung Fu back in the 70s? Yep, yep. You know, it's like it, it, you only used your, your martial arts unless if you had to. And I, that was kind of the mindset I had. We shouldn't want it. But at the same time, I really, I felt, I've, there were only two times in my life where I felt this sense of anger. The other one was on January 6th. We can get mm-hmm. that another time. Mm-hmm. But I watched what happened, and I, I've never experienced, I'm not like, an overtly shove patriotism down your throat kind of guy. Yeah. But that really hurt to sit there, be training to protect my country and then see it. get mm. hit. So yeah, there were people that really wanted to strike back. I don't think there were vengeful, vindictive, but there were people that wanted to do something about it. Yeah. I could see that. And so you were a helicopter guy. I'm not sure I've ever asked you this. Did you go into the military? Like I want to fly helicopters. Like how did that come? Cause I'm always fascinated that you flew helicopters. So how did that come about? Um, I went in on an air contract. So, yes, I went in to fly. You don't ever really know what you're going to fly. It comes out to essential, you know, logistics and manpower needs. And they funnel you in a sense of where you go. They try to put you where you want at the time. Uh, I mean, everybody wanted to be, you know, Tom Cruise, um, but <laughs> yes. not everybody can be Tom Cruise uh, because you got so you only got so many seats to fill. Yes. But um, yeah, I, I mean, most guys going like I just want to fly, and and so I went in and I was super happy because um, I got to see the world. The best way to see the world is between five hundred and a thousand feet. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you. Have you ever flown a helicopter since you got out of the military? I have not. No, no. it's 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 expensive <laughs> when you have to pay for it yourself. Um, and my heart and passion is ministry. God had changed my heart into from helicopters to people. So how did that happen? Like let's let's close there because I do think that's the fascinating one of the fascinating parts of your story. You're in the military now. You're in the C.S. Lewis Institute. Walk me through that journey and kind of how God changed your heart a little bit. Yeah. Well, the, the parallels are incredible. Um, I managed, believe it or not, I managed people and uh, in the Marine Corps, we're cultivating the Marine and preparing them. And there's real strong parallels to what we do in the church and making disciples. So I used to go, how is God going to use this experience? And all of a sudden, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, it makes perfect sense. Hmm. But um, toward the latter end of my career, uh, I had come to, I'd been trying to be a faithful Christian and I was mildly successful, <laughs> but not always. Yep. Um, but I realized looking back as a kid growing up in the church, I'd never been discipled. Nobody ever poured into me. So I actually went looking for that. And God, take, making a long story short, God led me to the C.S. Lewis Institute where I met uh, a guy named Tom Terrence, who at the time was a president. Uh, and I don't, think, I don't think there are many people that understand discipleship better than him. And he was my answer to prayer. Mm-hmm. And then I did their C.S. Lewis Fellows Program, which was a one-year discipleship program. And I had an aha moment, first two of them. One was, why did no one ever tell me that this was what the Christian life was all about? That mm. is so exciting, so robust, so rich. And then the other one was make sure this doesn't happen to others. Yeah. And so I knew I was going to go into ministry and that God was calling me. I didn't know I was going to go back and work for the Institute because I didn't think they needed my help. Uh-huh. I thought, okay, I got to go do this somewhere else. But the, they asked me to start 
the Chicago office. When That's awesome. Hey, uh, let's close this way. Uh, people just heard you say that, like, wow, this this is so exciting. And they go, well, I want to know about the C.S. Lewis Institute. Where can they connect with you? Where can they get more information about the C.S. Lewis Institute? It's a long one, but go to cslewisinstitute.org and then look for the Chicago drop down and come to our all my information's there. And we can tell you about we got a bunch of events coming up this fall. So you can come and explore and see these things for free. And I, yeah, I just want to see people grow in Christ yep. and, and build them up. So um, and I would like just to give a shout out too to all the veterans that are out there today, mm-hmm. many of them away from home deployed or sitting in a hot desert somewhere because um, they're still on the wall protecting us. That's a great word. K.J. Johnson, again, the director of the C.S. Lewis Institute, also a retired lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Marine Corps, given us some reflections, some memories uh, from that day on 9-11-2001. K.J., we appreciate you, man. Thanks for spending some time. Hey, it's always good to be with you. Sorry, Mr. Aubrey. We'll get her next time. We'll get her next time. You're listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Aubrey is out today, but she will be back again tomorrow. Uh, So Aubrey and I will be together all week, and uh, we're excited for that. And I'm thrilled to be joined for the rest of our show uh, by a friend of the show, uh, Kelly Flanagan. Kelly, uh, we're going to catch up with him a little bit about life here to start, but as he joked, he's a clinical psychologist and writer, like who writes. And so major uh, changes have happened in his life. So Kelly, first of all, how are you doing today? Good, Brian. Thanks for having me back on the show. Yep. So last time we had you on your show, you had your own practice as a clinical psychologist, Mm -hmm. but you had also done a lot of writing. You had written uh, The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell and some other stuff, but you were just telling me as we uh, were talking off air, major changes. Why don't you tell our audience about that? Yeah. um, So we closed uh, my brick and mortar therapy practice in Naperville this year. um, And I've transitioned most of my energies into to writing. Um, I write a I'm actually publishing along with my audience as editors, publishing my next nonfiction book on Substack um, at drkellyflanagan.substack.com. And I'm uh, I've just published my first novel. I've got my second one is finished and being edited. Um, I uh, I'm going to be out in Wichita, Kansas at Apprentice Gathering uh, next week uh, to speak at that event and then hosting my own um, my own event companion camp out here in, in rural Illinois the following week. So that's sort of a flavor for my life yeah. right now. Um, I was just talking with friends this weekend. And they're like, how did how did you end up here? And I was like, if I give myself credit, I go all the way back to high school and just whatever is the next thing interesting me, I just go do that. That's interesting. um, So so I'm sure you've talked a lot of people through change and the nerves that come with that. How has it been to be the one doing this? Does it just fit your personality or has it been terrifying? Like what's what's the process been like for you? That's such a great question because I think people assume I'm some sort of thrill seeker with all the changes, but my wife is actually the thrill seeker. (laughs) Uh, I'm I'm the one who's uh, inclined to want to do the same thing forever. Um, But at some point, I think I often sort of define courage as being more more attracted to the thing that sort of lies beyond your fear than resistant to the fear itself. Mm. And so I'm always I'm always nervous. I'm always anxious, but. I get sort of enamored of that thing I can see coming and I want to go after it. And so that's that's what's been happening this year, especially. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, so I did want to bring you on to talk about a couple psychology things. So let me pick your brain a little bit because we always appreciate 
your perspective. So let me start on a personal level. Uh, as I was telling you off the air, uh, my son turned 16 today. He got his driver's license earlier today. Mm-hmm. So a lot of like, you know, little letting goes. You and I have kids kind of the same ages. I, what would you say to people out there uh, who struggle with the passage of time, who struggle with their kids getting older or themselves getting older? You know, like they I want to just hold on to when my kids are six, but now they're 16 or whatever. When, when somebody was talking to you uh, about stuff like that, what, what what's the advice? What's the words you give people in those situations? You know, I, I, just last night, um, I was out for a little walk after dark, and I walked up our driveway when I got back home, and I was struck by the emptiness of the driveway because my 20-year-old, his car used to be in that third spot mm. in the driveway, you know, and I was struck by that, and I thought, man... Uh, that car will never be there again. Now we've got we've got our own fifteen year old right. about to turn sixteen who's going to have a different car there. But then that car is going to be gone, yeah. right? Yeah. And then my daughter, who's currently thirteen, that car will be gone. And uh, and so you know, it's interesting we talk about this on a day like nine eleven because um, in my book True Companions, I talk about a really interesting body of research that shows that. If we aren't, and the phrase in the research is, if our fragility isn't primed, right, if the passage of things isn't primed, if the temporariness of things isn't primed for us by events going on around us, then what we do is our values shift towards the values of expansion. Mm. I want more stuff. I want to achieve more. I want to meet more people. I want more experiences. I want more pleasure. But when our fragility is primed by events, our values naturally shift to, to one basically singular value. I want to appreciate my time with the people that I have, right? Mm. And, and so we can sort of repurpose these passages in our lives to let them prime us to our fragility and the transience of things um, so that our values, at least for a little while, can shift towards really appreciation, gratitude, and presence with the people that we have. So last night I'm walking up the driveway and that car is not there. And I can, I can do a bunch of things with that moment, right? I can beat myself up for having taken it all for granted because I sure did yep. a lot of it, yep. right? My fragility wasn't primed for a lot of it. I was growing my career and he was growing up and moving out and, and I can beat myself up for that. I often say that regret is just like our tendency to not accept that we're ordinary people and we get distracted. Um, I can... I can make vows about, you know, how I'm going to act going forward. But the truth is, if I can just let that prime the fragility and transience of things and be aware of it, then I'm going to walk into the house and I'm going to be in an entirely different energy and entirely different space with my kids and my wife in the house. And I was, and it was a really beautiful rest of the evening last Mm. night. Um, The question is, can I wake up today and let my fragility (laughs) be primed again? And if I can, and on a day like 9-11, it's a little bit easier. That's right. Right? Yep. Like, if if most of us remember how we felt in the weeks and months after 9-11, we'll realize, oh, I was just grateful to be with my people. Right. I was okay just being at home with them. There was some, even though there was this tremendous grief and mourning and some fear, there's also this deep sense of peace and rootedness and centeredness. That was because your fragility was prime, and then time passed, and we forgot about it. Yeah. Right? COVID did it again to us for a little while, and now we're forgetting again. So we sort of need to take responsibility for that priming. That's that's really powerful. Uh, 
So the sixty-four thousand dollars question is: How do you? How do we do that on a day-to-day basis? Right? I'm like you. Like life's busy, and I just a lot of the regrets yeah. are just oh, I let those years go fast because I had to start a church and yeah. I had the radio, well, all these kind of things. Do you have any any words of wisdom or maybe practical steps to just make sure that you you don't miss those times? I mean, to me, this is sort of my my first answer is not a practical one, and this drives people crazy. But my first response to that is that this is sort of what the heart of spiritual formation is about. Because mm. if we are resistant to the pain and suffering of life, we will actively avoid reminders of our fragility and our transience. Those reminders will make us feel anxious. And so we'll try to, to resist and avoid and not pay attention. In other words, you could even argue that most of what we stay distracted with is so we don't have to pay attention mm. to how fragile and transient things are. And so I think when we're being formed spiritually, what we're being formed into is people who have quit categorizing life as what is good and pleasurable, and these things are bad and suffering and difficulty. And we say, no, 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 I'm going to sort of welcome all of those experiences open-heartedly as much as I can and fully experience all of it. Jesus said, can you drink the cup, right? Mm-hmm. Can you drink the cup of suffering? And what we discover is that the, the sort of the resurrection on the other side of that is that if we can drink the cup, all of a sudden we're rooted in our deepest, most important values of our people and our place and our appreciation. So, um, so practically speaking, um, I, I say, hey, uh, wake up today, pick the three things that you are most resistant to experiencing today and begin to do the work of opening yourself up to those things, approaching them instead of resisting them fully experiencing them and you'll be forming them, forming yourself into somebody who is willing to let their fragility be primed and be reminded of what's important. Uh, Today, obviously, September the 11th in 22 years, speaking of the passage of time, Mm -hmm. 22 years since those that terrible day, uh, uh, September 11th, 2001. But obviously you and I have raised kids who weren't alive then. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we have a whole generation coming up of people in their mid twenties who, uh, don't have any recollection of what happened on nine 11. So it got me thinking about our kids. Uh, what is the value of talking to them about nine eleven or things like it? And at what point are we putting too much trauma on our children? Maybe what's the right age? How do you have those age-appropriate conversations? What What are your thoughts on that? That's a great question. Um, I have not thought about this at all, so I'm just speaking off the cuff here. My favorite. Um, it's my favorite. I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think you. Um, I think what you pointed out that. That 9-11, you know, I have a 20, uh, they'll be 2016 and, and 14 this month. 9-11 to them is sort of like Pearl Harbor was to me. Right. Um, so it was impossible to traumatize me talking about Pearl Harbor because it was just a story in the history books. Right. Um, and we really haven't had anything like it on American soil since then. And so to them, it's a, it's a remote experience that probably feels, if anything, a little bit irrelevant. Um, and, and so I, I'm not sure we can traumatize them by talking about that. I think the question is, why would we talk to them mm-hmm. right, about it? And, um, and the first thing that comes to mind is, um, it, yeah, I mean, you don't want to overdo this, but I do think it is important that our kids know our stories, right? Right, um, right. And, and, what, and, and how did mom and dad cope with something really hard that happened in their life? What was that like for us that week? 
Um, and and so it's an opportunity to model. I mean, it's oh, that's interesting because I start to get emotional when I actually put myself back in that day, right? You know, and the sky, the sky's sign, or even more like five days later when I heard the first plane in the sky and was like had a had a fearful sort of reaction to it, right? Um, and and so I think it's um, I think it's Im- important to um, be able to talk with our kids about what what resilience looks like in those situations and how we got through it and what our stories um they've been through covid right mm-hmm. that was sort of a, a bizarre scary time um and so you can tie it to that even like well this was sort of our covid before covid and this is this is how we did it at that age and so i think it's just an opportunity to sort of share those stories within a family and create a culture of resilience within the family yeah it, it is hard because uh, especially when they're younger the question is, what do we want to, uh, like you said, put on them that maybe they don't need to know? But then also, like, it's an important part of our history. Let's talk about personal trauma. How do you tell people even to walk kids? I, I'm very interested in kids and trauma. So grandma dies, right? Or, you know, the, the dog dies. Yeah, time to put the dog down. Whatever else. Something very set on the, your particular family. How do you walk? Let's say preteens and younger let's go preteens and younger how do you how do you help people understand what's the best way to walk kids through traumatic events well that's a great question i mean i think first of all um we we have to be clear that painful events are not necessarily traumatic events um so traumatic events painful events become traumatic events when we feel completely out of control of them Mm. and they feel wrong or bad. Um, So for instance, you know, sexual abuse, Um, a child knows just by the basics of their wiring that this feels wrong and bad and they're not in charge of it. So it lends itself to to traumatic symptoms and uh, and traumatic reactions. But in our house, at least um, we, gosh, Brian, just on Thursday night, um, we had what will probably be our last conversation with my wife's grandfather. Mm. All the kids, all the kids were there. We were on video. Um, my mother-in-law had to keep telling him, "Don't touch the screen." <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll end the call. But he was he was pretty lucid, and he asked my uh, 15-year-old to carry his coffin. Oh my gosh! And he asked me. He asked me to give his eulogy, and we talked about his passing and it didn't feel bad or wrong. It felt like um, my, my 15 year old said he's so brave and peaceful. Mm. Wow. What a learning lesson. What an incredible, what an incredible final gift my wife's grandfather gave to his great grandkids to model the passage in that way. And, uh, and so there's, I I think there's zero possibility for trauma there um, for two reasons. It didn't feel bad or wrong. It felt natural, even though it's painful and my, and my son gets a little bit of control in it. He gets to carry the coffin. He gets to be a part of it and act in it. And um, and so um, so what we want to watch out for is situations for our kids that feel um, bad, wrong, evil, um, and which they have no control over. And and those are situations where we want to work with them to have some sense of uh, agency in it, 
um, and some sense of presence, like that they're not alone in it is, mm-hmm. is really the main thing. We see that a lot of trauma can be offset just by the presence of this one supportive person. You can go to school and be bullied. And if you come home and you don't feel ashamed of it and you can tell a parent about it and that parent is 100 percent on your side, it mitigates the effects of the, the, the traumatic yeah. bullying. So yeah. um, so we want to make sure that there's a sense of control and a sense of um a belonging going mm. on in the middle of the the event if it is if it is a bad wrong or, or painful event that's great that's great all right kelly unfair question because i'm only going to give you like two minutes and i'm going to go to a different field <laughs> okay uh do you have advice for people out there uh we all we read about a lot in christian literature these days is the movement of of uh deconstruction right like this deconstructing mm-hmm. of the faith Somebody out there with doubts, with pains, with, you know, towards the faith, how's that done well, whether they're helping someone? Well, let's talk to the person who is deconstructing. What's if they came to your office and described that, what what would you kind of what's kind of the advice you'd give them? Oh, man, that is a big question. Um, And you got two minutes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'd say the only problem with deconstruction is the fear of it, because Mm. when we're afraid of it, then we say, well, we're not allowed to even go there. And so the person who's deconstructing then doesn't have anybody to walk alongside them to reconstruct. Right. Right. Um, and, and so they just deconstruct and then they're like, oh, that was bad. I wasn't allowed to do that. No one will talk to me about it. And so I've got no one to sort of uh, mentor me through a reconstruction of this. And so they end up with nothing. Um, whereas, I mean, I think we even see in the life of Jesus a pattern of deconstruction. and recon- He deconstructed his own faith. He, mm. And he reconstructed it. He didn't. He didn't do away with it. Right. He reconstructed it into something deeper, something more meaningful. Um, and so, I think we actually. I mean, as Christians in particular, we live in a faith tradition of death and resurrection, deconstruction mm. and reconstruction. And um, and and <laughs> Jesus is always saying, reconstruct it into the more loving thing. Reconstruct it into the more inclusive thing. Mm. Reconstruct it into the. The more graceful thing, um, and, and if you got to do some deconstructing to make that happen, let it happen. But our fear of losing control of it becoming something we don't understand uh, currently often leads us to sort of resist the, the that that phase of it, and so we leave people sort of stranded in a place of deconstruction. I think. Mm. But it's a great word. Anyway, Kelly Flanagan, kind enough to spend uh, a good amount of time with us today. Kelly, uh, people want to read your books or hear from you. Where can they connect with you? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so my most recent novel uh, is The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell. You can get it in, in paperback and digital and audio wherever books are sold. Um, and then, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm writing my next nonfiction book live online with the editorial feedback of my readers, which is a total blast. Wow. And, and you can find me at do- – yeah, it's, it's great. It's it's really cool. Um, I think they're eventually going to have a chance to, like, pick the cover and, and, and pick title and, cool. and all of that. It's going to be super exciting. Yeah. So I said Dr. Kelly Flanagan com dr kelly flanagan at substack or dot substack.com and of course if anyone wants to find my all my archives of you know 10 years of blog posts for free you can go to dr kelly flanagan.com awesome kelly it's always a pleasure man thanks for spending some time with us today brian's an honor thank you man yep and we'll be back again tomorrow from four to six aubrey will be here with me we're looking forward to that uh, I am Brian Fromm. We're really glad that you spent some time with us today. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.